Hey everyone, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. You know, I retired from the Oregonian in 2015. The following year, Donald Trump gets elected to be president. And we all know that started a pretty persistent and continuing assault on the news media in the United States that has dramatically eroded the trust in the general press. Print newspapers, for the most part, are a dying breed. Look, I, I am optimistic about journalism in this vein. All right, folks. Today, our guest is Les Zeitz. Les is a legendary journalist in Oregon who we were very, very excited to have. I'm going to read his bio straight from the Oregon Capital Chronicle because I think it's great. And then we'll talk a little bit about the episode. Les Zeitz is a veteran editor and investigative reporter serving Oregon for more than 45 years. He reported for the Oregonian for 25 years and owns community newspapers and a digital news service. He is a national SPJ fellow, two-time Pulitzer finalist, including for a lengthy investigation of Mexican drug cartels in Oregon, and a five-time winner of Oregon's top investigative reporting award. He has investigated corrupt state legislators, phony charities, and an international cult that moved to Oregon, and the biggest bank failure in Oregon history. He also has been active in reforming the state's public records law and was appointed by the governor to the Oregon Public Records Advisory Council. In his spare time, he operates a ranch nestled in a national forest, feeding horses and assorted animals. So a lot of ground covered in today's episode. Alex, can you give a brief rundown of the topics? Yeah, we talk really about everything that covers journalism from basically how he got his start in journalism to how the news atmosphere and landscape looks today why he thought it was a good idea to start two news publications while a lot of other publications are shutting down, the role of creators and their rise in news, and then also for probably the most drama-filled fact, which this was not a very dramatic episode, but we talk about all things Greg Smith uh, and his views with Les, which I thought was really interesting. And I don't actually know enough about the background to really make a judgment on it, but kind of as I stated, if a if there was one reporter that for each district that covered their state rep, like he covers Greg Smith, <laughs> I think a lot, a heck of a lot of people would be very informed about what their legislators are up to, what they're voting on, what they're doing in their, you know, private sector business and all of that. So uh, yeah, really, really unique episode and really interesting figure to have on the pod. Yeah. And I will say, I mentioned this a little bit at the outset, but don't give a ton of context. But so we were selected at Oregon 360 Media to go through the Google News Initiative um, program. And we've done a couple of other sort of like startup news stuff. And multiple times over the last couple of years, folks at the national level have been like, do you know who Les Seitz is? Have you been in touch with Les? Like, have you, do you know about the Malheur Enterprise? Have you heard about the Salem Reporter? He, like, I think he's well known with the, in the Oregon journalism community, obviously with all of his awards, but on the national level, really the model he's started with the Salem Reporter and the Malheur Enterprise, the Capital Chronicle is actually sort of a separate thing because of their funding and business model and nonprofit status, et cetera. But what he's done with those two institutions is actually really incredible and exciting. And as we talk about in this episode, something that I think and hope should be replicated across the country to kind of bring back local news in a way that's profitable, but also super valuable for local communities. But lots of fun stuff in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Alex, make your recurring plug for the YouTube channel, which is just ballooning, my friend. Yeah, there's literally billions of people subscribing. It's, 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 it's one of the biggest in history. 
So yeah, you can check us out on YouTube. We are at youtube.com slash OR360. Also, if you type in Oregon Bridge podcast, you'll be able to find us quickly, but definitely check us out on YouTube because that is increasingly becoming a very large to almost the bringing on the majority of our views for some episodes. So uh, lots of folks are enjoying the content over there and Buddy does put a lot of time into editing that video as well. So go check it out. And we'll have new content coming there in the next couple months as well that we think you'll enjoy. All right, everyone, enjoy this episode with investigative journalist Les Zeitz. All right, Les Zeitz, uh, welcome to the podcast. How is it going over in uh, in Eastern Oregon today? It's fine out here in Eastern Oregon. No crowds, no traffic, uh, no noise, just <laughs> forests and horses. That's awesome. Well, I have been excited to talk to you for a while. Um, we, um, with Oregon 360 Media, the parent company of the podcast, went through the Google News Initiative program. And uh, you are a well-known name in that community because of what you started with some of the, the journalism startups that we'll talk about in a little bit. But I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, and to start out, I was, you know, you're, we'll, re, we'll read the listeners have already heard your, your bio by now, but you've covered some huge stories in your career. Um, yes. But before we talk about those even. How did you first get started in journalism? What was your first job in the business? Was this something you always knew you wanted to do? Or what, what's the origin story? Well, I, I grew up in the business. Uh, my father was a journalist. And uh, we lived in Kaiser when I was in uh, elementary school. And dad had a an old-time weekly newspaper that was literally printed on a rotary press and set type by hand. And I was the oldest of five kids. And so dad pressed me into duty as his printer's devil. And uh, so I, I know how to use a type stick. I can set a headline by, you know, letter by letter. And uh, the office in Kaiser at the time was uh, about a half a block from the, the local volunteer fire department. Mm. And, uh, the, you know, the, as in many small towns, when they need a response back in those days, this is back in the 60s, uh, a big siren would go on and, and, and all the volunteers would go running. So, you know, uh, Larry Ham from Union 76 and Sam Orchid from Orchids IGA would, would uh, drop what they're doing and run down and grab a fire truck and, and head out. And uh, dad one time uh, said, well, why don't you go over when they get back to find out what they, what, where they were. And, you know, I'm like 11 years old <laughs> and uh, I go over there and say, yeah, my dad, somebody told me to find out what was going on. And I, you know, I don't have any remembrance of the, the first story. It would have been a fire or a car accident. But that idea of getting, quote unquote, the inside story, I would just just really uh, caught, caught my attention. And uh, my dad never pushed me into it. He was too busy trying to make a living and feed, feed five kids. Um, but I literally uh, grew up in uh, in the print shop, and uh, I was off and running, and had my first byline in the Kaiser News when I was twelve years old. So I haven't looked back since. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, you you recently announced your retirement. Although I wanted to ask, is the retirement just from the Capital Chronicle, or are you yeah. calling it calling it a career with the other two publications oh, as well? No, no, uh, I, I'm on a I'm on a glide path instead of a straight straight helicopter landing and getting out and walking away uh, uh you know Oregon capital chronicles first uh, we we are trying to find some new operators for the Malheur enterprise in Vail 
And then I'll stay involved with the Salem Reporter for a while because I have an excellent crew there. And frankly, I just don't need to put that much time into it. Got yeah, it. I'm, I'm, I am uh, dialing back uh, at a rapid pace. Well, there will certainly be some um, folks who I'm sure are disappointed that you're going to continue uh, continue <laughs> your writing for a couple of those publications. Um, yeah, and then yeah. last question before I go to Alex, um, you know, Malhir standoff, Rajneeshi's corruption, drug cartels. When you think back of all the big stories you've written about or covered, what's most memorable for you as a journalist um, of all those stories? Boy, you know, that's like asking someone, what's the favorite piece of chocolate you ever ate? <laughs> uh, right? It's, it's the last piece I had. Uh, look, I've been really fortunate in Oregon to be on the front lines of, of all these major stories that you talked about and the eruption of Mount St. Helens and the crash of the DC-8 in Portland. I've just been very fortunate generally to be in the right place at the right time when when all hell was breaking loose. You know, but clearly the Rajneeshis uh, stands out uh, because uh, part of that investigation uh, when I was with the Oregonian, I spent a month in India, uh, including roaming around in some of the heartland of that country, and I'd never been out of the country before. It, it remains a remarkable experience for me. Uh, going to see uh, Manan Sheila in Switzerland 25 years after the ranch. Holy cow. Spending, uh, the better part of three days with her uh, after I was on their hit list back in the day <laughs> stands out as a, as a surreal experience. Um, so yeah, I, we could go on and on and on about that. Uh, yeah, no, there, there's no one top story um, every story that I've done in a major uh, way had its appeal and interest and, uh, you know, uh, dreams that went with it. So, okay, before I go to Alex, I know I'm, but as a, <laughs> you know, as a wannabe journalist, I heard a little nugget that I have to follow up on. So Sheila, for the folks who are listening and maybe haven't seen the Netflix documentary or weren't around then, she was sort of like the ringleader of the Rajneeshi. She was like the chief of staff, basically, for the leader of the cult, um, who I believe was brought up on charges um, in the United States and sort of fled to Europe. Or so. what's what's the background there? And then what was it like talking to her? Oh well, we can talk about this for for hours. So <laughs> yeah, this might the be the podcast. Uh, yeah, well, it was a religious cult. Uh, a, depending on how you want to characterize, but anyway, they they moved to a a, a major old ranch uh, in central Oregon, about an hour out of Madras, and uh, became the world headquarters for this uh, Rajneesh cult. And Manan Sheila, uh, who grew up in India, uh, was, was essentially the CEO of the sprawling enterprise. And uh, in 1985, as the commune collapsed among a, a remarkable uh, list of, of criminal conduct, uh, Sheila and a bunch of her uh, top associates did flee to Germany and uh, the federal authorities uh, got a warrant and went to a small uh, city in, in uh, Germany to arrest her and I was lucky to arrive there like the day afterward and uh, it was a pretty remarkable experience in and of itself. So yeah, and she came back and pleaded guilty served a couple of years in federal prison. A number of the top people did serve time in, for federal prison or for federal crimes. Uh, in this day and age, their sentences would have been much, much more substantial than what they got back then. Um, but then uh, she left the country and uh, uh, runs a couple of care homes in Switzerland, if you can believe that. 
<laughs> I'm not sure if I'd want to be in one of those care homes. And it's crazy. <laughs> that was the most interesting part of the documentary was me. It was the, uh, the, you know, the attempt to assassinate the U.S. district attorney and she got a few years in jail. I was like, wow, things were, were quite different back then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but so, Lesson, uh, kind of speaking through your career, right, we've seen a lot of evolution in, in the journalism industry. We've lot, seen a lot of paper shut down. We've seen a pivot towards digital. Uh, now I would say even, of course, there was a pivot towards digital, such as online website and things like that. But now there's more branding and more building on social media. Uh, and I would say a lot of people don't necessarily think it's a good time to start a news business. And you have started two publications in recent years. One is the Salem Reporter, which if I'm not mistaken, is a for-profit publication. Uh, yes. And then you additionally started the Orkin Capital Chronicle, which is, I know, is a nonprofit organization. Uh, so obviously you, I imagine, are feeling somewhat optimistic about the future of local news, but would kind of love for you to riff, and I have a couple other questions on this too, but uh, tell us kind of what the thought was of, you know, other people are shutting down papers and you're thinking of opening them and starting to hire new, uh, hire new, new folks on staff trying to cover more stories. Yeah, thanks for the interest in that. Um, look, uh, you know, I retired from the Oregonian in, in 2015, the following year, uh, Donald Trump uh, gets elected to be president. And, and as we all know, that started a, a pretty persistent and continuing assault on the, the news media in the United States uh, that has dramatically eroded uh, the trust in the general press. Uh, and that has all sorts of implications. The primary implication is that people don't know what information to trust anymore. Well, if you're electing officials or you're making decisions about uh, government spending or even where you're gonna live, if you're not sure of the information you're getting, how do you make a judgment about your life, about your career, about where you build a home, about where you send your kids? And so uh, my, my principal mission uh, in the past five years is to do whatever I can to inspire a, a restoration of that trust in the public media. And that requires two things. Number one, uh, the profession itself has to do a pretty good self-analysis. There is a reason that people don't trust us. Um, I, I think that that is partly uh, due to an arrogance of, of the press for many, many years. Uh, we will tell you what you should know, and we don't expect you to question us very much. Um, I think in, in the Trump era, it unleashed a, a tilt in coverage that was uh, that readers certainly detected uh, and particularly Republican leaders and conservative leaders uh, saw what they saw as a, as a definite bias against uh, their interest. And, and in some ways, I think they're absolutely right. Um, and so what led me to, to take on these new enterprises was number one, the realization that, that uh, print newspapers for the most part um, are, are a dying breed. And uh, the, when, when I started the Salem Reporter, uh, the main investor initially wanted us to do a print publication. And I said, no, that's, that's not going to happen, uh, even though I spent my entire career in newspapers. But I recognized the power of, of the web and of the digital presence and the speed and the ability to get out, out news. And uh, so I started up Salem Reporter. I have an excellent staff. 
and we are strictly focused on delivering information that we want people to trust. And we are very candid with people about our stories, about what went into them. Uh, we don't do any opinions or commentaries on the Salem Reporter site. And that's pretty interesting. I did a survey of our readers last fall because I was thinking, well, maybe we should start doing online letters to the editor and doing columns. And boy, readers overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, like 85% said, leave the opinion out, just give us the facts. We can go find the opinion we want. Now, the Oregon Capital Chronicle, that is an affiliate of a national nonprofit called States Newsroom. And this is an organization that is uh, ambitious about trying to plug in the gaps in the coverage state by state of state politics and state government. And, you know, I frankly wasn't looking for yet another uh, uh, project to undertake, but, but I was very impressed by the mission. Uh, I was impressed by the support and I agreed to, to get them launched in Oregon. Uh, again, with, with the ambition to provide people uh, what I consider the type of journalism people need, uh, fact-based, fact-checked, uh, and as much as humanly possible, just call it the way we see it. So, uh, yeah, I'm look. I, I am optimistic about journalism uh, in, in this vein. That that the country and the people in Oregon are hungry for sources of news they can trust. There are so many places you can go on the website to find information, right, to suit your interests. But I have a core belief that people, at the end of the day, uh, reasonable people want good information and they wanna be left to make up their own minds and their own judgments about that information. And um, I think the profession, we still have a long way to go to get that, that tilt back to where people trust us, but that's what's driven me all this time. And thanks uh, for uh, listen, listening for so long. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And so specifically for, for both publications, you had mentioned covering the local. Uh, and I personally feel, and I think this was this was definitely true once Trump was elected and once he was running, but I think that you sort of saw this shift beforehand as well, that a lot of the local, local news publications, at least the bigger ones in the state still standing, had become nationalized in some way, right? Like everything was about national issues, Donald Trump is running, Republicans in Congress are doing this, Democrats are doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, I think readers, when you're reading your local publication, you probably want to hear what's happening in Washington, D.C. But I felt, and I still feel to some extent, that there has been such a shift to where, uh, as politics is nationalized, I think journalism is nationalized, too, to some extent. And I think that there's a lot of open windows for publications like yours, right, which are covering back on the local. You're saying there's a lot of important things happening in Salem. There's a lot of important policies and different changes, elections, et cetera, that are happening at the local level, at the state, you know, at the statewide level and at the district level. Uh, I'm curious if you, it just kind of what your opinion is on that assessment. Do you think that publications in general with kind of the rise of social media, right, trying to get a lot of clicks, driving traffic that way, did you, do you see that trend as well, or do you disagree with what I just said? I disagree. No, <laughs> uh, look, uh, here's, here's one factor you need to consider as you sort of analyze the local news uh, environment is that at every level, uh, newsrooms have fewer reporters, right? The economic model is under attack. So in, in, the, in the day when the Oregonian had 400 uh, people in the newsroom, 
there there was you know they, they reported uh, national events, but you had just an enormous ability to cover events in Portland and Salem and across the state. Well, at the Oregonian, at the East Oregonian in Pendleton, at the, the Medford Mail Tribune in, in Medford, as newsrooms shrink, readers still expect their daily newspaper, right? And so I think it is not so much an intentional say, shift to, well, we're gonna cover more national. It's frankly, I think a necessity that they have pages to fill and space to fill and websites to fill and not enough local news to fill that. So. Um, you know, I would say with the exception is that the Gannett has has nationalized their newspapers uh, more, and particularly uh, increasingly in the past couple of years, where they combine coverage from all over the country for for common stories. And uh, there's there is value to that, um, and there will be with states newsroom, for example, that that our newsroom in Oregon can collaborate with Idaho and Utah and Nevada on stories of importance to the West. Uh, but, but I think uh, that what you're seeing is, is a pragmatic response to the economic pressures as opposed to a deliberate uh, shift to change the, the tone and look of the news content. So that, that's actually a perfect transition to my uh, question. So to put some numbers behind what you just said, Les, um, and this is actually from 2019, but the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill found last year, so I think this would have been 2018, that in the past 14 years, 1,800 newspapers closed, one out of every five across the country, um, which their, their premise is basically there's news deserts all across the country where there just isn't access to local news. Um, I serve on my local school board in Tiger Tualatin, and when I was in high school, there were oftentimes two local reporters, one from the Oregonian and one from the local pamphlet who would show up to the school board meeting and report on what happened. And we, I, there might be one or two meetings where we've actually had a local reporter show up to the school board in the three years I've served. Um, why that matters is there's actually been research on this. What happens when local news goes away? Voters engage in more polarized voting behavior, less split ticket voting. They rely more on national news, national trends to conduct their voters, their votes. There's less citizen engagement in, the lo in their local government. They tend to participate less and they actually vote at lower rates. There's less actual voting. So given all that context, news deserts, really harmful behavior uh, or harmful, harmful consequences of the death of journalism. What I'm confused about is it feels to me like you've actually, and that's why kind of what we're, we're, we don't consider ourselves like journalists, but what we've tried to build is a subscription-based digital first model. And it seems like what you've done at, is pick local communities like Malheur, like Salem, who need, who need more access to local news, and you've made it profitable. So I guess what is confusing to me is why aren't we seeing copycats or similar models in Tigard and Canby and Oregon City and Lane County? Or do you do you think we're in a transition and that's going to come? Or what explains the fact that we have these news deserts and we have business models that seem like they work? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'll try to give you the shortest answer I can. Uh, number one, uh, when, when we talk about news deserts, that presumes that all the news services that exist are already doing a fine job of covering their communities, right? Mm -hmm. We make that assumption that 
okay, so uh, two counties don't have newspapers, two counties have newspapers. And, and the assumption on these sorts of studies is that they're doing great community journalism. That's not the case. Uh, we, we, there's too much uh, weak journalism still being done uh, uh, across Oregon and across the country in, in the old traditional style of reporting on Rotary Club meetings and frankly, uh, sending a reporter to sit in a school board meeting for three hours to play stenographer. Um, <laughs> and we talk, talk about that because that, that's been a, 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 it becomes a question of how do you use your resources to provide the most effective coverage. So that's, that's one thing is that, that I still think there's enormous room for improvement among the news organizations that still exist, whether they're news or a local radio station in John Day, at KJDY, um, or digital startups like the Salem Reporter in the, the Highway 58 Herald out of Oak Ridge. Uh, secondly, um, you know, I, I think there is an opportunity for more creation of, of digital news services. Uh, a, a colleague of mine, Quentin Smith, who quote unquote retired, uh, started up one in Yahats, a uh, little bit of huh. tiny Yahats. Well, now the Yahats News uh, is a, a, a go-to source of local information that people do trust. Uh, down in Ashland, uh, where, where the Medford company shut down the daily newspaper. So uh, a couple of journalists down there have started Ashland.news. So we are in a transition where people recognize that you can start up digital. And look, digital is, is enormously uh, inexpensive compared to starting up a newspaper. I don't need a press. I don't need layout people. I don't need delivery people. I don't need news boxes. I need people to go get information, file it on a computer, and then hit a send button, and the news goes out. So um, I, I think we're going to see more and more investment in digital news services. And I think the business community uh, will increasingly see the value of those sorts of news services and provide the advertising support. But the third thing is this, hmm. that for, for a, a local newspaper or the Salem Reporter to survive, to me, the key metric is, are you delivering something that people will pay for? Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, it's not, we, 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 we ought not be trying to shame people into supporting us that, well, geez, you're just going to be an ignorant slob if you don't read our publication. That's the wrong, I mean, you know, essentially that's sort of the subliminal measure sometimes. Uh, but to me, I always remind my staff that, that, that we have to deliver something of value and by value that people value that the information we're delivering can be trusted, is factual, and is of relevance to their lives and they'll pay for it. And so that to me is the core, core mission right now is to make sure we're delivering something of value. I love that. I don't get very passionate about this. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I feel like I'm uh, finally in my graduate level journalism class that I wanted, that I wanted to take. <laughs> Alex. And so, and so Les, before we uh, uh, move on to a few different topics, I did want to ask one more thing just on the future of news front. Uh, over the last couple of years, there's been a rise of what people are called or what they call creators. Uh, you know, essentially people who make content either on YouTube, on Twitter, on TikTok. Uh, I know there's also some other new popular social media app that just came out that I don't even know what the name of it is, but you like take a picture of yourself once a day, it has to be a random photo. So there's tons of these platforms where uh, some people have, you know, millions of followers on this. Like it's, it's always funny to me to go 
on Twitter and find some random person I have never heard of before that like 35 or 40 million people are following who just plays games on the internet, basically in streams and people watches them. Uh, of course, there's a lot of these people who are creating uh, either political commentary, news content. Uh, one of my good friends, Sagar Jetty, he runs a show called Breaking Points, which is a really popular online show. I think they have almost a million subscribers on YouTube and they uh, he does a show with a liberal guest and he's conservative and they talk about different news topics of the day. Uh, now, I know that both on the right and the left, there has been kind of a uh, brewing point, I would say, in journalism that some of these creators are becoming very popular and sort of displacing traditional news uh, publications and, and outlets. And obviously, I think you could you could say there's positives and there's, there's, there's negatives of this, right? The positives could be that, you know, people are able to get news from different sources. They're able to have diverse opinions, but then on the reverse side, some people would say, oh, well, this person is spreading misinformation or disinformation or whatever. Uh, curious of kind of your thoughts on the rise of creators as I wouldn't say they are ever going to totally replace news to some extent, but many of them are having a substantial and stronger hold, I would say, on the daily news that people do consume. Well, I mean, Alice, that goes to the point of, of people seeking out content that sort of echoes their view of the world, right? Uh, and, and I'm not certified smart. I, I just don't know what we do about that. But that's why I remain confident about the future of journalism if we perform our primary mission. Because whether you want to watch a, an outrageous podcast or, or some uh, really entertaining YouTube video, that doesn't help you decide what part of Portland you want to live in, right? Um, or whether the, who you're voting for uh, for the state legislature matters or not. And so uh, the, the enormous splintering of, of information sources is of course an enormous challenge for all of us. I mean, we all get fatigued uh, from this, this, this steady diet of, of, of Twitter feeds and Facebook posts and you know, uh, as a journalist, I man, I have to monitor a lot of things just like you all do. And boy, I tell you, at the end of the day, I just don't want to look anymore. Um, so I, I don't have the solution or a, a very positive uh, 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 outlook on how that's going to be ameliorated. I, I think uh, that's why I really focus on what I know, which is which is just basic core journalism and trying to trying to break through all this noise with information that again has value to people, not is not just entertaining, but has true value in their lives. Okay, now this is really our last journalism question before we transition to another topic. <laughs> but as you can tell, we like talking about this stuff. Um, yeah. So you, you've actually touched on, um, I was going to quote you from a, an interview you did with Pointer in 2019, where you basically said there's a significant erosion in public confidence um, in, in media. Um, and I think part so of consistent. <laughs> yeah, you're 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 consistent. Don't worry. You're not there's no flip-flopping <laughs> with less sides. Um I have a few thoughts on this that I, you know, sort of half developed. I think one of the, one of the things that I think is driving distrust, that probably a smaller factor in addition to the other sort of polarization social topics that we've talked about, is like, and you've alluded to this, local news, uh I don't think people trust a lot of local news products because the products aren't very good. 
Um, like to your point, like just because you have a newspaper doesn't mean it's a good newspaper. Um, and particularly when these are owned by national companies like Gannett, who are just kind of putting in their cookie cutter stories. It's not really about what's going on in the local community. So I guess I'm just going to ask it pretty directly. I am wondering if you think, I was talking to um, a professor at U of O, a journalism professor at U of O about this, and he pointed me to a New Jersey model where the state legislature has actually allocated funding to supporting local news, to growing local news. And this can be a polarizing topic for some people because they think when, you know, state dollars are invested, it somehow makes, uh, you know, the product more untrustworthy or biased or it's improper. Um, but on the flip side, if we agree that local news, when done well, has really tremendous outcomes for our democracy in terms of engagement, accountability, less corruption, then it also seems like there's an argument to be made why the state should be investing in the capacity of local newsrooms to do good journalism at the local level. So I'm curious if you have thoughts on, does the state government have a role to play in helping bring back local news? No, in okay. my, my little small corner of the world. Uh, look, I think, you know, we, we get support from government in, in, in some ways. I mean, we, we get uh, tax, tax benefits for write-offs for our expenses. We, we charge the government to run public legal notices. Uh, and uh, for some newspapers, that's a significant source of revenue. And frankly, I've always been puzzled about, well, for the news organization, and this is important information, why are we charging the city of Ontario to run their budget information? Um, but that's, an, that's another debate. Uh, look, my my concern is that if number one, if you if you have government supported journalism, and there's there's efforts in Congress to substantially support local news, mm. um, it it becomes I, I think it raises a lot of questions about you know just as you have separation of church and state, you should have the separation of the of the press and the state, and so I'm not persuaded that that is a, a good answer now. If that's the only answer, if the if the choice is government uh, uh, supported journalism versus no journalism, I, I guess I would dope and say, well, some is better than none. Uh, but again, that goes back to my essential point that if we're not delivering something of value, why should the government prop up something that people won't support on their own? Well said, and I think Alex probably agrees with what you just said. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I always, uh, it was the same thing with the, the disinformation board of, you know, the Biden administration started this. I was like, imagine if Trump wins office again in 2024 and then has the Trump disinformation board. That would, that, that's what I always imagined was sort of the funding of, of local news and things like that when it comes to government. But, uh, okay, so transitioning gears here just a little bit. Uh, so, so speaking of, of some of the publications, your uh, recent coverage of uh, Republican state rep, Greg Smith, I would say, uh, and I will say Ben wrote this question to say has raised eyebrows. Uh, I would say it's raised more than a few eyebrows for sure. Uh, so first there was uh, Greg Smith's offer to buy your publication. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I looked at your tweet and he'd offered about $30,000 and he would essentially take over the publication and get rid of the current staff that are there. Uh, there was also reporting that uh, there was a heated argument between you two at a hearing 
Uh, and then there's also been reporting that he has officially since barred you from press conferences. And I believe there was a city call that he was hosting the other day. Uh, and you were either asked to disconnect from the line or you were essentially kicked off of the line. Uh, I don't remember the exact uh, dynamics there, but I'm sure you can talk about it. But uh, it seems like there's uh, probably some before, I was going to say before and after, but that wouldn't make any sense. So before of kind of that relationship, uh, curious of what what's kind of going on there with your coverage and, and just kind of the history there. Well, look, uh, you know, in, in, in my, all my years as a journalist in Oregon, one of my primary missions is to hold public officials accountable. And, and I have been uh, unapologetically aggressive about investigating public corruption. Well, I came to Mount Hare County, Greg Smith was under contract as the economic development director, fine, great. Uh, and then, then a, they got money to put in a major public works project to build a, a rail shipping center to help the onion industry and it would be funded by $26 million in uh, public money. Well, uh, as that project unfolded, questions have developed about, you know, what, what, what's the basis for this project? Who's making the decisions? Why is it behind schedule? Why is it over budget? And uh, you know, Malheur County is a, is the poor, one of the poorest counties in, in the state, and I feel a particular responsibility to the citizens of Malheur County to watch over every single dollar uh, that the that the government spends, no matter how it's spent, whether it's uh, for sheriff services or healthcare or a reload center. Well, Greg Smith is a pretty potent, powerful state legislator. He's been in uh, the House longer than any other representative. He's amassed a considerable amount of political clout, particularly on the Budget Writing Ways and Means Committee. And uh, frankly, Greg is used to being treated with deference and respect, and he is not accustomed to being questioned about his conduct. And so the, the relationship between uh, his operation in Manahara County and the enterprise as to say the least been strained as we've, we've pursued the truth. And uh, two years ago, maybe three years ago, uh, he, he, he wanted a criminal investigation of us because we were sending emails on the weekend uh, trying to get information. Um, you know, he, he uh, one time started trying to, to peel off and, and uh, persuade people not to advertise. I mean, this is a public official, right? Um, you know, you say there was a heated argument. That's not quite right. Uh, this is a recent meeting of a public board. There's a specific item on the agenda for the press to ask questions. And I was simply asking Greg Smith some questions about the funding. And I, I, as I wrote other places, in my 50 years or nearly 50 years of doing this, I have never seen a public official react as angrily in public as Mr. Smith did at that session. It was so, so uh, uh, remarkable that a county commissioner had to step in uh, and try and bring it down. Uh, so it was not an argument. It was us doing our job asking questions and Greg taking exception to it. And then just last week, he, uh, he conducted a news conference uh, in his public role for Macher County. Uh, myself and a reporter, it was all by teleconference. And so we called in and we twice got disconnected and then they blocked the number. And we let our community know about that in, in uh, Mount Hare County. And I can tell you, uh, the county officials have been getting one email after another, people coming to the courthouse, people calling 
saying they, they're they not gonna tolerate this. They wanna know why the Mahir Enterprise is being uh, shut out of getting government information. So uh, look, uh, this is a, a in a small, small town, this sort of reporting is really tough to do, but it is vital. And I can tell you the people in Mahir County now stand firmly with the Mahir Enterprise that these questions deserve answers. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, and it's interesting. I would say to see his approach too, because as uh, some of these things start to happen, of course, then you write about it, other people write about it. It starts to make the rounds, and obviously the issue starts to come a little bit bigger. And uh, not really a question, but more sort of just a statement. And then I'll push it over to Ben. But I, I think that the coverage that you're doing is is, and I haven't delved too much into it, but it's just great in the sense of it's. It's, uh, I would say, tough coverage, right? You're reviewing everything for local officials, trying to hold them accountable for their votes and where money is going. Uh, and I think that if there was more journalism like that, basically amongst every single state senator, House member, et cetera, there'd be a lot more public trust in government. And I think, frankly, too, a lot more people would be interested in local news because, as you said, uh, these might not be the billions and trillions that Congress are spending, but I mean, almost $30 million, that's a lot of money, especially for a county that doesn't have much. So uh, yeah, no, I think it's it's exactly coverage like that that gets people really interested. Well, let me add to that one other, one other important feature about this is that uh, I, I want our coverage to be sort of a role model for other news organizations. I mean, I right now I have one reporter, right? Uh, I don't have a vast newsroom, and we've made the commitment that even with sparse, sparse resources, we're going to undertake this sort of reporting because it's so important. And I'm hoping that will inspire other news organizations around the Oregon, around the West, to to not just say, "Well, we're too small to do this." Uh, well, it's your job. You better find out a way to do it. Well, yeah, I was going to say. Um, now we're just piling on the praise, so we need to get some tough questions quick, Alex, to to make up for this. But um, <laughs> Uh, the reporting, you know, we talked about me serving on a school board and we don't see reporters and you made, you made your crack about not being a stenographer. That's not what the enterprise is doing. Like if you look at the Ontario school board coverage, this was a few months ago, we won't dive deep into the issue, but there was like serious problems, um, potential mismanagement, um, personal relationships spilling into boardrooms, affecting employment decisions, like important news that needed to be covered. And if you all didn't exist, uh, and we're, had the ability to do the public records requests, attend the meetings, conduct interviews with these folks. I wonder if voters would have known the half of it. Um, so anyway, I just want like I think I wanted to bring school boards back into it because I actually my from my bias perspective think that the work school boards do is really important. We have far bigger budgets than local cities do, oftentimes um, are oftentimes the biggest employers in communities, and oftentimes go completely unreported <laughs> of their actions and decisions. Um, uh, I, I would say too, there definitely a reporter needs to hold you accountable. Yes, I need a reporter to be holding me <laughs> <you> accountable. <laughs> I'm glad Les lives on the other side of the cascade. That's good. Yeah. So what? When's this board? meet the next time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. actually perfect segue less because the next question i have is actually about oregon's public meetings law and its public records law um which i know you in, in addition to your business role um have also served on i believe it's this a state uh state board on public records i think it's the, the sunshine what's the name of the the board you sit on it's the, well, I retired off of that. It's the Public Records Advisory Council. It's appointed by the governor. So created in about three years ago. A couple questions on, on this. Yep. We 
reporters have frequently written about in multiple publications, Oregon's public records law and process and how it actually works in implementation. There's a lot of complaints that you hear. It takes too long. Um, agencies are unresponsive. Um, they charge too much to produce um, public records. I'm wondering if you can give us just kind of, and I know this is a large question, but what is the state of Oregon's public records law? Is there more, I know that the commission actually made some changes uh, or recommended some changes. Um, where, do, where do things stand and is there more work to be done in your view? Yeah, there, there is. And the council uh, is, is proceeding with, with a pretty determined look at particularly the issue of fees Mm. Uh, what what government agencies, some government agencies that uh, are not that uh, don't embrace openness and transparency as much as others, have discovered that if they charge high enough fees, that discourages uh, journalists from proceeding. Because look, uh, all of us have smaller budgets than we did ten years ago, and so our willingness to pay uh, a high cost to get a batch of records is less than it would have been. So the uh, the just the cost of getting the record can be a deterrent to proceeding. And that means in essence, okay, that file door stays closed because I can't afford to pay for them to unlock it and let me in. So that is a, 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 a persistent issue. And then uh, related to that is that there's just a hodgepodge of policies among uh, government agencies about you know how much they charge per hour and how much per page and uh, there, there, there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason, frankly. Uh, about here enterprise recently, we, we had to pay uh, up to $225 an hour to get copies of some construction uh, meeting minutes, uh, which is just absurd and we will, we will be contesting those. So fees is one issue. The second issue is that, uh, look, there, are, there is good and valid reason that some government records should not be released to the public. You know. Uh, information about uh, you know children and, and, and security issues around uh, infrastructure. I mean, there are valid reasons. You don't wanna disrupt a murder investigation by trotting out all the police reports before the case is done. Um, so the law makes provisions for government agencies to say, look, uh, we're, 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 those records are off, rec uh, off limits or they're off limits for now when we're done with the investigation or whatever, they'll, they'll be available. Some of those uh, what are called exemptions from disclosure. And the main policy, the government policy in Oregon is that citizens have a right to every piece of paper within a city, city government, a school district, state agency with exceptions. So the presumption is everything's available. Then the law set carves out, you can't see this, you can't see this, you can't see this. Well, those numbers of exemptions have just exploded. There's over 500 of them now. Um, and so it's difficult for agencies, it's difficult for journalists to navigate through that. And, and agencies are also very adept at, at using those exemption claims to sort of put the, the, the a sheet of secrecy over files that, uh, that may be embarrassing to them. So there's a lot of work to be done to tune up the law on that front. So and, and I, I, let, yeah. me, let me add one other thing too. Please. What, what people tend, what people tend to forget is the public records law is the public's law. This is not a special law just for the press. The press uses it because we're trained to. But as you know, um, any citizen can walk into a school district and ask to see budget documents. And that's important. And I think we need to do a better job 
of educated citizens about what their rights are on this. So that actually is a great, another great transition because I'm going to put my other hat on, my non non interested in journalism hat, my government hat on. Um, not speaking for any of my <laughs> anybody, but just like my own thinking is. So jur- journalists are are one thing. Um, I you know you have finite resources as Malheur Enterprise, right? You're not going to be asking for public records that you don't believe might be important or might help you tell a story. No. You're not going to be, you know, requesting things just to cause problems or add a workload to city employees try to, you know. I do think that there are increasingly well-funded activist groups who, if they disagree with the perspective of a government or the actions of a government, they're using the public records process as a way to gum up the system and just throw things at. And then, you know, uh, oftentimes these are lower level city employees who are just spending hours and hours of their day sorting through things. And then on the other, and then on the public meeting side, Journalists in Oregon, as you know, have um, special treatment in under Oregon public meeting law. They are entrusted to be in executive sessions, which are not open to the public. They can't report on what occurs in an executive session, but they can be there to ensure that basically the executive session is legal and is doing what it said. And there have been numerous cases, even in the last couple of years, of governments kind of uh, going beyond the scope of an executive session. My my question is. And Alex sort of mentioned this rise of creators, and I think it's kind of part of that. Like these folks aren't really journalists, um, but they might call themselves a journalist to get into an executive session or to um, to you know they have a legal right to do the the public records, but they might be using it for a more partisan or political purpose. I'm curious if you think we need to adjust the laws a little bit to reflect. Uh, these differences in how people are approaching public meetings and public records, or is that just the cost of doing business and we need to adjust? Yeah, I guess my initial reaction is that if we want to open a free society in the United States, that's the price we pay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, that said, I mean, I have sympathy for for government agencies that, that get uh, uh, these burdensome requests. And I do a fair amount of training on public records and, and anyone that is reasonably well-trained in public records law will advise, you know, in, in the journalism community will advise, look, uh, make your request as narrow as possible. Ask for what you want. Don't ask for every every document that mentions the Columbia River, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Because that, that will jam up the works and you, you, you're gonna get tons of stuff you don't want anyway. Um, but the, the, this question of who is a journalist is, boy, uh, you know, that that's a whole other podcast and uh, <laughs> get a bunch of constitutional scholars and I'll bring the popcorn and we'll watch the debate, uh, you know, because uh, that, that, that and it's particularly in the modern era, that becomes a, a, a fascinating conversation, frankly. Um, and so I don't have a ready answer for you on that, but I, I think fundamentally what we have to always remember is, look, uh, Transparency is the ultimate goal, and if if transparency gums up the works or is inconvenient, is is not a price we're willing to pay to know what our government is doing. Mm-hmm. My main interest is just ensuring that Alex Titus never gets to go into an executive session of any government. So as long as we can all agree on <laughs> that, that's a scary thought <laughs> for many people. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay, so Les, I just have one more question, and then uh, I think Ben will go ahead and close us out. So. You live on a ranch in rural Oregon, uh, and you've also worked 
for companies and you cover frequently Salem and Portland. Uh, we talk a lot of, on this podcast about the urban-rural divide, which I probably don't even need to define at this point because I've done so many times in the episodes. Uh, from your perspective, uh, what do you think that journalists can do better to sort of help to bridge, bridge those divides between people? Because we ask a lot of the times policymakers what they think they should do, and I think that that's an important aspect of it, right? There's obviously certain policy considerations that need to be made for different areas of the state. But I think some of it is also, I mean, I think a decent amount of it is also cultural, right? Uh, and I think the journalists have a really key role to play there in terms of what information is being relayed and what type of information is being relayed. So I'm, I'm curious of how you think uh, journalism, either through interviews, stories, different topics that are covered can kind of help to bridge that gap. Well, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, a tough one, but I think essentially what, what, fundamentally has to happen with journalism in Oregon is that the coverage has to fairly reflect the different regions. You know, look, it, it tends to be sometimes uh, uh, journalists will parachute into Paisley, Oregon and do some cute story about the Mosquito Festival, right? And it, it creates this sense of, oh, gee, aren't those people out there and the Oregon Outback cute and interesting and, and uh, rather than focusing on, on the systemic issues of you know, rangeland management, or why is it important to, to manage uh, the sage lands and the sage grass? And what is that, what, why would anyone in Western Oregon care about that? Um, and, and I think it cuts both ways, you know, because I, you're right. I mean, I, I've had a fascinating perspective of being, living in, in rural Oregon, and I've been active in the community here. I've been on the hospital board and the Soil and Water Conservation District board. Uh, in, in Vail, we obviously uh, get a, a lot of uh, discussion about uh, those, those people in Salem. Uh, I think there's a lot of, of people talking past each other that it is not just rural Oregon being uh, denigrated. I think sometimes rural Oregon is not giving uh, the urban areas a, a fair shot, a fair understanding that, that their perception that is you know, entire, the entire city of Portland is under siege and you just can't go there. Well, that's not quite, quite true. Um, so I think journalists have to do a better job, number one. Number two, I think there's gotta be more sharing of news content because we just don't have uh, the organizations that have people that have a statewide perspective anymore. Uh, and number three, you know, frankly, the Oregon Capital Chronicle, that's one of our, our uh, ambitions is to provide a better perspective on, on what's going on around the state in, in a thematic way and not a episodic, well, this is some bizarre thing that happened in Myrtle Creek. Well, Les, thank you again. Uh, no, I, I think that does answer it. Um, yeah. I think that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we usually end the podcast by allowing elected officials, policymakers to plug their campaign website. Um, so now the the question for you is: If folks want to read your stuff, or you may, you know, maybe they want to follow up on some of those Ontario school board stories or uh, the other stories, where can they where can they read some of the work that uh, you've helped make possible? Well, hey, look. Okay, so you can go to malhereenterprise.com, M-A-L-H-E-U-R Enterprise.com. Uh, a digital subscription is $5 a month. You can go to SalemReporter.com and get all the Capital City news for $10 a month. Um, or you can go to OregonCapitalChronicle.com and get the news for free. 
Uh, we don't charge for access to that. People can support us with donations at the Capital Chronicle. But I would really encourage people to sign up for the newsletter for the Capital Chronicle, see what we're doing to get our newsletters every day, to get a, a taste of state coverage that they maybe haven't seen before. Awesome. Well, Les, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, to all our listeners, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.